0: these disaster after disaster operations that, that we've been in for, for the last four years, it just doesn't seem like things have uh, has slowed down. So it's very hard to try to add something else on top of what everybody's already managing with. And I think there's all um, policy changes that we can look at, even legal structures and frameworks uh, as an example the Stafford Act really sets the, the foundation for how uh, disasters are, are managed here in the U.S. You know, mass migration is not right in there. So there's certain authorities that aren't provided to you know certain federal agencies and, and all the way down. So there's really no structure for a response.
1: Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, Emergency Management Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle. And in this episode, we are going to explore a global challenge that transcends mere policy, which is mass migration. We'll delve into how mass migration is shaping emergency management as the next metacrisis. And it's important to differentiate this from what we would call just immigration policy. For example, while immigration policy often deals with the regulated movement of individuals across borders, mass migration refers to the large scale, often involuntary population movement driven by factors such as war, natural disasters, or economic crisis. These movements create complex challenges, including strains on infrastructure, social tensions, and demands on emergency services which differ fundamentally from the controlled processes governed by immigration laws. It's important to also understand that many international organizations are now looking at population movement as key criteria for their member states. This includes NATO, which looks at population movement as one of their key factors towards societal resilience. Our guest today, Jorge Rodriguez, serves as the Emergency Management Coordinator for the El Paso City County Office of Emergency Management with extensive hands-on experience in managing crisis from related to mass migration, the COVID-19 pandemic and domestic terrorism. His insights come from a place of deep expertise and El Paso, Texas stands at the forefront of these issues rendering this conversation especially relevant and timely. Before we proceed, it is crucial to note that the opinions expressed in this podcast are our own, and we do not represent those of any specific organization or institution. This show has always been and will continue to be about sharing ideas and experiences, allowing all of us to gain perspective and grow professionally. So let's dive right in. And Ori thank you for joining us today. sir. Thank Kyle. Thank you. Big fan of the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me today. Looking forward to the conversation. So this is a wide-ranging topic, and there's a lot to sort of unpack here. But before we do all that, just maybe a bit of background. How did you get started in emergency management?
0: Sure. Well, I came up through the fire service. I currently serve 24 years within the fire service. But the last seven years, I've been deeply steeped in emergency management. Our emergency management program for the city and the county is embedded within the fire department. So I've served as as you said, the emergency management coordinator pool since uh, 2017. I really came into interest, you know, going back almost a decade ago when you all of all the deepwater oil spill that happened along the Gulf of Mexico. I remember just being fascinated. I think I at the moderator of uh, Ted Allen and his leadership in that. Really, that's what drew me to the complexity of types of issues that emergency management homeland security deal with. So that's really what's drawn me. This is where I want to be, and that's where I am today. So.
1: Well, that's great. Thanks for that background. And it's really interesting in this particular topic because one of our focuses, and at least a lot of the work that we do, we focus on this nexus between what we call crisis, conflict, and emergency management. And so in this particular lens that I look at this, and it might contrast with yours, and it probably does, and this is where I think it'll be an interesting discussion, we look at population movement as a result of conflict. And so some of the things that we're looking at, and I'll just use this as just sort of setting the scene for the discussion, we look at the Ukraine, the, the war in Ukraine, And then what's happening there. And we look at some of the baselines of like what NATO is expecting, you know, all the allies to be able to perform. And that includes being able to manage, let's say, 2% of your population to be able to move within your own borders. Now, in smaller countries, that might seem easy enough, but, you know, in a country like the United States with uh, what, 330 million people, 2% of the population could be substantial, right? Uh, And unfortunately, we've had some experiences which could probably meet somewhere closer to that, such as Hurricane Katrina and things like that. But for the most part, what we've also seen in recent years, or since February 2022, is that it's not 2%. It's more like 25, 30, even upwards of 40%, depending on the extent of this, the disaster, the war, the conflict, whatever the case is, which can cause considerable strain on critical infrastructure, resources, and everything else that goes along with that. As you mentioned, it's like this meta crisis, right? It's beyond anything we've ever planned, all the systems and structures have been sort of pushed to their limits and beyond. This is a really interesting conversation because this is coming from like our perspective and the work that we do internationally, but we also want to take the perspective of, you know, you know, individuals like yourself, professionals in the field that are dealing with this in a context that's similar, but not exactly the same result. So what are some of the challenges you see in terms of emergency management dealing with sort of mass population movement, either into their communities or through their communities or anything like that?
0: The conflict component of emergency management at the international level, I think, is very much in your vocabulary. But for us here as a domestic emergency manager, we think from a local level, we think about regional, here's our state. We hadn't hasn't really entered our risk profile in terms of whether or not this is something that we should be uh, preparing for. And for us, being on the word, as long as we've had mass migration really that started back in 2019, was it? really that big of an issue. But in 2019, here in El Paso, we had our first mass migration. Uh, this was primarily family units that were coming from Central America. And it was a long, protracted incident. And you know, we went around six, seven months, and there were about 120,000 migrants that just passed through our region, what we refer to as the Paso del Norte. And so that was the first indicator for us that that this might be something that we might be dealing with as a local emergency management program. You know, fast forward to 2021, you know, the pandemic and we see a huge spike of encounters at the border uh, across the the entire southwest border. And then in 2022, 2022, finally see that reflection point of mass migration again, you know, becoming a big key issue for us. And we'll take a deeper dive into those uh, specific instances. but just kind of setting the context of the conversation today. Yeah, it's something that's not on our radar. Uh, We did something to help us. In our planning and here in the state, we put together hazard mitigation plans, and that's where we do a complete risk and vulnerability analysis of, of all types of hazards and threats that we may face of the community. Well, one of the ones that we added as we were updating our plan was mass migration. And following years is when we actually saw, like I said, that inflection point of the, the largest Mediterranean crisis uh, that hit a border community, uh, probably historic and never seen these levels in the U.S. ever before.
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting. And so in terms of adding into this dynamic into your planning process, I'm curious about that. And so what changed? Because in communities, you're planning for your own population, right? Your community and your citizens and sort of managing a disaster that occurs there and managing any sort of internal population movement, evacuations and and whatever the case is. Now you're planning for an unexpected factor. You don't know the numbers of people that might be coming through your community. And that's obviously got In any planning process, you're going to have sort of the significant, you know, infrastructure, economic and facility and resources constraints that go along with that. So how has this impacted your planning process? I mean, there's lots of parallels there between the work that we do and sort of what you're facing. It's quite interesting. but. You're having to deal with something that is not very quantifiable. I mean, you could look at statistics and metrics and say, well, over five years, it's been this number and you could try to plan for that. But at the same time, it's very difficult because it fluctuates quite a bit, I would imagine. So what are your thoughts on that? How's your experience been in sort of the impact on your planning process?
0: Well, planning, I think, has been our saving grace as we've gone through multiple surges here within the community. But at the same time, it's one of the most difficult types of events to plan for because you have so many unknown actors. Throughout this uh, last year, uh, as you may uh, be familiar with, there's a public health policy that's called Title 42 that was put in place at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, as that policy was being implemented and there were multiple times where that policy was going to be, it was going to come to an end, but it, it got tied up in courts, And so it went back and forth. So for us, it's always a stop and start, type or a start and stop operation where it's very hard to build capacity when you don't know if the ruts are going to get pulled out from under your feet. And uh, so for us, we've taken just a long mm-hmm. view of it, uh, looking at our platform. Yeah. And we really felt back to... You know, our existing policies and procedures, you know, setting a long-term incident action plan, setting out objectives for all of the different impact areas, and just working each one and updating that as, as we went along. So it's helped us organize ourselves, but we've always had to be ready to be able to scale to a number that we just don't know how high we need to scale to. I think that's been our biggest challenge.
1: At what point do you find the tipping point though? Because I find it interesting, you said, don't know the number, which is, is true. I mean, that's very difficult to predict And any of the work that we've seen is just a guesstimate at best on what could possibly happen. So have you been able to, in this planning process, identify the tipping point? For example, where you know, like, this is the critical point for this critical mass for us. Like after this, it's something's gotta change.
0: That is one of the biggest challenges that we saw from our first incident in 2019. And just to give a little bit more context to that, we had about 120,000 migrants passed through the community. We had a very large NGO capacity at that point. During that period, they had over 30 of what we call hospitality sites set up. And for the most part, there was some government intervention to help support the NGOs, but it wasn't like anything that we've had to do as of last year. So with that context, most pandemic, as you know, most of the NGO operations run on, on volunteers. And... Post-pandemic, that volunteer base was just completely decimated. Of course, retirees, people that have extra time, you know, are the ones that, come that are meeting their time to health and their costs. But we had about the reduction from 30 shelters down to about a dozen. And the numbers that we saw last year really just made the numbers from... 2019 just completely building out of the water, and to kind of illustrate this a little bit more, in 2022, last year, this is by August, right around the, this time, we began to see a very small trickle of Venezuelan nationals and that were coming through through the border, and started as a, as a trickle. So here locally, our NGOs have post we'll pandemic have a capacity about 300 persons that that are processed, encountered, and then ultimately released to our NGOs uh, by Customs and Border Protection. That happens every day. That's our city state, uh, and that's managed. But in that period, we began to see a trickling group of Mount that were uh, coming into the community, and they were unique in that they were first generation migrants coming into the US. Most of our previous migrants that come through our, our region have sponsors, they have family members that uh, they're able to connect to, they're able to Contact them, and they help them with with monetary funds to secure their travel and move on to their final destinations all over the U. S. But last year, with small group, which started out pretty innocently, it was a small group of Venezuelan families that were in, that that made it that timed out at the other shelters, ended up in our homeless uh, shelters. Well, uh, once we assessed what what their situation was, they said, well, you know, we want to go to New York. They had no means to travel. And our system here on the border is not a sheltering operation. It's more of a transportation system. Because most of the migrants that come through our region, 99% go on and remain in El Paso. So they all move on uh, all over the country. And so in this case, we helped charter a small bus to New York in that first group. And then from the first state to Three weeks later, we were from, went from 300, it went to 1,000. Migrants coming in into the community at that point. So quickly scaled, our operations scale and our system was completely uh, overrun. That's one of the challenges in, in planning for this because this was the first time for us you know, with decades and decades of migration coming through where we had a population that had no needs to move on on their own. So the, the system became locked up. One of our strategies was to create what, what we call a, a welcome center, And that essentially helped us develop what came to be the largest chartering operation uh, that that the U.S. has probably seen. Uh, During a 45-day period that we operated that center, we moved almost 14,000 migrants to Chicago and to New York, which were their destinations of choice. Uh, And all of that was just to keep the system moving. And at that point, as you're probably familiar with with the chartering that's happening at, at these large cities, we moved almost... 300 charters in that 45-day period, uh, and about 14,000. And so that was our first major surge that we had last year. The context has always changed. You know, another surge in, that, in, in December of that, uh, of that same year, they all came with very unique challenges, and we can kind of dive into those year-old.
1: Let To give a little bit of context to the numbers that you're talking about. So again, if I just use a, my reference, which is sort of a 2% population movement, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the population of El Paso County is around 680,000, is that right? Yeah,
0: yes. Uh, so City of El Paso, we're, we're right around seven hundred thousand, And then as a, as a county, we're at 870,000. Yeah, updated center numbers.
1: So you're probably looking at, I'm just sort of guessing here, but I, that's obviously not going to be 2% if you're managing 120,000 and an and annual basis, correct? I mean, it's annual basis, right?
0: Correct. Well, yes. So let me give you a little bit of the data to kind of bring this out a little bit. So when you look at our... On that month, our baseline numbers were around nine thousand two hundred twenty-six migrants that were coming through our community. That was based on that steady state, right? About three hundred a day. All that added, added up to, to that number. In a three-week time period, that jumped up to twenty-one thousand migrants that were coming through the community. On the on the front end, on a lot of London counters, it went from about twenty-two thousand. And by categories, I mean those, uh, those those are the migrants that were encountered at the border by Customs and Border Protection. Uh, that jumped up from twenty two thousand to forty five thousand over this period. If we look back to March of, of last year, excuse me, of May of twenty twenty two, what which was going to be the first time that Title forty two was going to be repealed, and that's where we saw some smaller surges. Today, we're easily at two hundred thousand migrants that have moved through the El Paso region. Since May of last year.
1: Okay, wow. That's a lot. So that basically again, just for context, when we're talking about that type of population movement, if if we're looking at our sort of you know, our international perspective here, you know, in our sort of standard metric is two percent internally, you're managing a twenty percent population movement through twenty to twenty five percent, it sounds like through your community with an existing population already. And so you're having this this flow of a population through your 20% extra people and it's sort of coming through your community every year, which I imagine puts tremendous strain on infrastructure and other aspects of like that. So how difficult is it to balance the needs of the community versus the need to manage this sort of existential crisis that's happening?
0: Just to give a little bit more context to our region, El Paso is, is recently isolated. We're far west, Texas. The next largest jurisdiction is Phoenix. We have Albuquerque to the north, and they're about four hours away in Texas, where all of our resources come, right at an level, resources come from east Texas, which is easily eight, ten hours away. And so for us, you know, that's just to start where it already puts us at a, at a disadvantage just because we're, you know, a smaller jurisdiction. And then at the same time, you know, we don't have these larger metro areas that, that, that can help absorb some of uh, of the flow. And the customs and border protection sector is all of southern New Mexico, and it runs all the way to about Fort Stockton in, in far west Texas. Very large, geographic area, you know, barren, it looks like Mars in some places, you know. So everything follows back into El Paso because that's where all the resources are, right? That, that's where all the transportation resources are that for uh, a lot of NGOs and, and all of that. So it's all the place that uh, can handle this flow. And so for us, uh, balancing the needs of, of the community and those of, of the migrants that are coming through has been a challenge mm-hmm. to be fair. Especially with our first surge that we had last year with the Venezuelan population, there was considerable funding that we had to put up front as, as, a, as a community. We were spending just about ten million in that forty-five day period. We spent about ten million dollars just to manage that. And fortunately, the federal government through FEMA, they start providing us funding for these types of, of operations. And, and really that's been the lifeblood for, for our operations, just because it, it is so expensive to manage these types of operations. And especially when we scaled like we did in December, it completely helped us get through, through all that. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's something to definitely taken to account is we still have services to provide, we still have to provide public safety, environmental services, you know, everything that, uh, that is the local uh will require to provide. But this added just a whole other layer of difficulty and balancing both. But we were able to do it.
1: I also want to highlight, this is not just like an El Paso issue. This is something that, you know, when there was the, the European migrant crisis a few years ago, I think that was back in 2019 or 2020. But anyway, that the, you know, 1 million sort of refugees were coming into Europe. It's still happening every day. I mean, crossing boats from North Africa and then landing on on the beaches and sort of around Italy and other countries. So that's still happening. And as I mentioned previously, the, the war in Ukraine and other aspects causing mass migration or not even mass migration, but sort of, you know, internal displacement of persons due to conflict as well as, you know, refugees. And so that's something that is just happening all over the world. And so when you're talking about this being a strain on sort of the way you're doing business, and, you know, even within the condition of being in El Paso, sort of isolated and, and things like that. How are you viewing this as being sort of the next major crisis or meta crisis, we might call it, for the emergency management community, especially when we look at and start blending in other things, such as, you know, climate security that's coming up and these other drivers of migration that might be happening as well?
0: Well, that, that's something that I've been touching on and have been presenting on this third topic. Really, especially what happened this last year for me, I think the feeling is a bellwether moment. It's challenged that, that right now, some of the largest cities in the U.S. are, are having a very difficult time with. You know, here in the states, when the largest and third largest city in the country are declaring a disaster, as we did. As the state of Illinois did, as the state of Texas did, and the state of New York declare disasters for, for this, you know, definitely is a bellwether moment. And as the emergency management community, you know, we operate as as local operators, but you know, now we have to open up our perspective to the global climate and all the geopolitical shifts. We saw impacts in at the beginning of the war with Ukraine when we saw a lot of migrants uh, moving through California. I mean, that that point. But then we saw the evacuation of Afghanistan. In El Paso, well, we have Fort Bliss military base here, which uh, became the recipient of about 10,000 Afghans community. So these things are happening. And now, since the number of migrants that are moving to the U.S., read, we've seen about, about 6 million migrants since about February of 2021 uh, that have moved to or have, have attempted to come into, into the United States. And a lot of them are applying for asylum. You know, they all have coming for for a variety of reasons, economic, uh, also leaving, you know, like Venezuela, for example. As you're probably familiar with this, that about 25% of their entire population has left Venezuela to neighboring countries. But also we just saw how migration and shift so quickly. Our partners in Denver, Denver is directly north of El Paso, about 12 hours away. And they saw the immediate impact. They, they were seeing foe coming in really unexpected coming into Denver in December of last year. So emergency managers really broadening our scope and really taking this into account. Emergency management is going to play a, a lead role, especially if you have these lagrant circuits coming into the community. What happened in New York and what happened in Chicago happened within a two-week, three-period. So the ability to scale and sustain those operations, especially at, now as a host city like Chicago, New York, when the, the Denabs are just completely different. From what we see here at the work, and so that, that that's really what I've been trying to bring this to the forefront of the emergency management discussion, because not only emergency management issue, but also you know there's a lot of homeland security aspects to it as well.
1: I agree with that, and I think that there's when I've started to see through having conversations with professionals like yourselves, and sort of working, you know, with these subjects on a day-to-day basis is the fact that we need to evolve in the emergency management space, and I'm just sort of like freely thinking here, so my opinion could change, but I think we need to evolve in the emergency management space to where we start looking at how we go from, and these are just my words, but sort of going from emergency management to crisis management and how that applies to governance, right? And so because these decisions are not something we can control, I mean, they're ultimately, at the end of the day, decisions coming out of our national capitals and things like that. But the impacts are felt in our communities, felt locally and fall upon emergency managers to contain this and eventually grow into an overall crisis that has to be managed before it escalates and gets out of control. And so this is where... I do think we need to expand our horizons and our visions about what emergency management is today in 2023, as opposed to sort of the traditional model of just disasters and sort of mitigation and prevention and preparedness. And I would say largely a more response-oriented focus to the day-to-day sort of disaster or an earthquake, as opposed to like these larger crises that could happen because of a changing environment. I'm not really clear on how that could happen. I think there's a lot of ideas out there still floating around, but have you had any ideas about how we can expand our vision and and sort of have these conversations?
0: What's happening, what's what's transpired over the last 30 months is just so novel and the United States historically, I mean, we've seen where there's conflict and somewhere in the world and we'll do see large groups welcome moving to the U.S., but nothing to the scale that we've seen. So I think it's just our imagination hasn't really caught up with the reality of, of what's happening and compounded by all, all just these disaster after disaster operations that, that we've been in for, for the last four years. It just doesn't seem like things have uh, has slowed down. So it's very hard to try to add something else on top of what everybody's already managing with. and. I think there's all sorts of changes that we can look at, even legal structures and frameworks. Uh, as an example, the Stafford Act really sets the, the foundation for how uh, disasters are, are managed here in the U.S. You know, mass migration is not right in there. So there certain authorities that aren't provided to you know, certain federal agencies and, and all the way down. So there's really no structure for a response something like this. And the way that it's managed, it's been managed differently at every city that's being impacted by it. So for the most part, along the border community, we have a great network. We're all approaching the issue very, very differently within ourselves. You know, a lot of similarities, a lot of best practices, but I think it's just really building a larger framework on, like you said, you know, I think us getting beyond just the natural disasters and then looking at some of these new enterprises that we have to catch up on and really start looking at where it very close.
1: I think one issue that we have is that yeah, it's, it's unparalleled in terms of sort of these events happening, but they just keep coming. So you had obviously the pandemic, and then you have a supply chain crisis, and then you get into a mass migration crisis. And then you, I mean, these things just keep Coming and coming. And I don't think that that is going to change in the near future. And in fact, what I tend to see more now is that even though they're, say, on a global scale, there's an initiative to sort of become a bit more isolated on an international sort of scale and try and, you know, get her to a safer space and and we're all contained in our environments. I think we are far too interconnected now. That we're not going to be touched by global environments and crises. I mean, the pandemic showed that in multiple fronts, and you know, migration crisis in Europe and then throughout the Balkans, and then even in North America is the same, the same issues that we're all dealing with. So I don't think we can escape any of these as isolated incidents. But at the same time, we can learn from what's happening in other countries and sort of see what people are doing because you know, there's no plagiarism in good ideas, right? I think some of the challenges, though, but. Made one point, which I wanted to to touch on really quick, is that it's also interesting the fact that you're having this 20% change in your community population who are uninformed about the risks and the hazards of your community, who are also then possible, you know, who are exposed to sort of the risks in your community. And so now they can become victims if something, say you had an earthquake or whatever. Happens. And so your entire planning premises are changing almost on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, it's always, always changing. With COVID, you know, we played a big role of providing isolation, quarantine, shelter for a lot of migrants that were moving into the community. That in itself, you know, created such a level of complexity dealing with migration issues, having big settings, challenges with putting people together, you know, with with a communicable disease like COVID really brought down a lot of capacity. And those are some of the things that, you know, we had challenges with. One challenge for us as a local jurisdiction that preceded the surges that we saw in 2022 was hard. And I like to connect them because I think they are related. After our 2019 surge that we had, about a month later, after the numbers had dissipated, we had a domestic terrorism event where we had an individual that came from the Dallas region, drove to El Paso, And committed a hate us act where we lost 23 of our community members. Seven Mexican nationals were part of that. And we had 25 others that were severely injured. And in the, in the manifesto, the perpetrator, he stated that he was going to put a stop essentially to this Hispanic invasion into, into our community. El Paso is made up of 85% Hispanics. Uh, and a lot of the national media attention that, that we were receiving during our first surge in 2019, you know, it all played a part of it. But as we jump forward and we look at the at these incidents of last year, uh, the surges that we saw this year in May towards the ending of Title 42, there's not only just a Homeland you know, Security concern for domestic actors, bad actors that have, you know, some animus against what they're seeing, so I guess this type of migration that, that's coming through the Southern War. And there's actors, and you know, I just sat through a brief with our federal borderers. we're monitoring some of these bad actors that were putting, you know, their arbitrary information on social media, and you know, wanting to commit acts of violence. So not only does this, that is, it's, it's like a positive feedback loop, right, where we're, the, the more Mass migration you have, the more the more people become agitated for what's happening, and some of that will, can carry over to some type of pain act that we saw here in 2019. So that has been in our mindset after that shooting that we were always a potential target for, for these actors. And as this generated last year through the surges that we saw, our security presence was very much part of our operation not just to protect our citizens, but also with the large congregate settings that we had for for the migrants. So we really worked closely with all of our intelligence agencies here in the region, our fusion centers, our our, our local state, federal law enforcement agencies to make sure that we had eyes on what's happening. But that potential was always there. And so that, I think, is is a completely other element of complexity that's added to it's mass migration, just because of you know the political fervor and, and and rhetoric that, that that we see, I think becomes a, a challenge.
1: Oh, absolutely, these are things that sort of the network effects or systemic effects of this kind of rapid explosion of population in your community, right? These are things that are just going to happen because that's the effects of it when something like that occurs, and I don't think you can escape those. I, but I am curious, though, in terms of. If those experiences, both with that terrorist incident, but then also in terms of the mass migration issues and the population movement issues, has that changed your approach in terms of talking with the public then?
0: Well, absolutely. And that, of course, was a big part of our strategies was providing regular. Then being on the border, very difficult to wrap your head around as to why this is happening, why there's hundreds of people outside sleeping on the street. Uh, which we saw in December 2022, you know, there, there's just a lot of complex issues that are, you know, difficult for us as the operators to understand, much less our, our community. So that, that was an art of our communication efforts was to try to inform what we were doing, what was happening and what the, what the future was hopefully going to look like. And we were in the national spotlight. During the first search the with the Monsolens, and then in December of 2022, where the numbers just, again, shot up, we were seeing about 50,000 encounters in that December. That's the highest number we've ever seen here on the border. And we had about 30,000 releases during the month of December. In one week, we were seeing about 10,000 migrants being released within the El Paso community. So the whole system was completely overwhelmed. We had hundreds of migrants that had come across what we call unprocessed. Maybe they hadn't presented themselves to customs or protection, so they, they came across illegally and they sought sanctuary at a local church in downtown El Paso. And these images were projected all over state, local, federal, international media that were here. And to have people understand, is I look, up these, Groups of individuals that run unsponsored, as an local community, we can't assist them because all of our federal funding is tied to only working with miners that had been legally processed and released by a customer with more protection. So that's all those nuances that we try to communicate to you them know, and do what we could as best we can to mitigate the, you know, the incident and really help those that were on the streets working with our faith-based organizations, our NGOs that did have capacity and we were able to leverage some of those resources to get some of those folks off the street. So yeah, I mean, that's just again, you know, the layers of complexity to this issue.
1: As we do in, in most of the podcasts, we talk about the local impact, some of these issues. And then we sort of go out and say, well, what does the future hold for us in terms of these sort of issues? And so we've talked a lot about the local impact in, in your region and your community in terms of the, the population movement issue. What are you foreseeing in the future, say in the next five or ten years? And then I'll just caveat that by saying, What should emergency managers be doing today for their own community?
0: Well, I think as long as geopolitical, your previous podcast, you know, there was a lot of references to, to climate and those impacts. So I think we're, we are looking at within this next decade where this is going to continue to be a challenge that is going to have global impacts, like especially here along the border, you know, we're always going to be at, at the front line of this, but any jurisdiction now in the United States can easily become the next New York, the next Chicago. And as you know, Washington D.C. was also receiving. Denver's been receiving, and then San Diego, as of late, has been receiving. So right now, migration, which makes it probably one of the biggest challenges, is that it can the bloat can. Change from one week to the next. And as migrants come through Mexico with Texas providing and doing a lot more border security. Texas has has become, which was once was, was the primary point of entry for for most migrants coming into the country. Now it's it's one of the most difficult. So a lot of those ship migration have moved west, right? Now Arizona is the busiest sectors. And so that, I think for us, is being prepared, you know. Looking at all of your hazards and threats, but also taking this into consideration because your your jurisdictions can be having those conversations with your leadership, having conversations with your NGOs, because they play a critical role in managing these types of operations. I think really is just something we, as emergency managers, as crisis leaders, just really need to start and those conversations. Where it goes, I don't know. Uh, and I, I don't know where we're going to be, but uh, the flow continues and... There's, you know, new policies that, that the federal government's doing to create different pathways and, and still try to meet the needs of, of these people that are coming from all over the world due to conflict, due to, you know, a multitude of factors. Their, their best hope is, you know, continues to be the, the United States. And for, for us as a, as a global player, it's just, you know, what's, what's going to be our role in that? And, you know, that comes at, at a much higher level, right, from the federal government side. All the way down to the local, but these are federal challenges, global challenges that, that really you know end up coming all the way back down to.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I, I think just to close out on that, I just want to highlight because I just ran the numbers really quick, and it's fascinating to sort of have this international perspective, but then apply it to like your community. And you are dealing with in your community, you're dealing with like Ukraine war level population movement in your community. I don't think people really understand that or connect the dots between the two. Because if you just run the numbers, you're roughly in the same category. There's 20 to 25% of population movements for your community is on parallel with what's happening in war regions uh, throughout much of the rest of the world. I think people don't necessarily correlate that and understand the impact of that on communities. And so while you're talking about, yes, of course, this is long-term, we don't know what's gonna happen, but I think people need to appreciate the impact on our communities by this massive population movement it doesn't go unnoticed right so i think that's something that these conversations are always fascinating for me to try and to connect it to because we think in one way and then we look at our communities and say wow this is really on a scale that i just didn't even think about
0: yeah and that's something that you know we we try to also communicate as best we can and the scale of scope of what's happening it's historic and then it's completely unprecedented the trajectory hasn't changed and you know, like migration as has been for for decades, it's it's always there. It's seasonal. You know, every spring that we would see a peak in, in migration because that's the best time to travel, and 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 so we we've, we've seen this for decades here along the border. But at this point now, with with the numbers that we've seen so consistently, and they haven't abated. You know, this is now the new trajectory of, of mass migration in that States.
1: Something we definitely have to think about in. Population movement being one of the next meta crises for the merchant management community. So that's all the time we have for today's episode of the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. I want to give a huge thanks to our guest, Jorge Rodriguez, for his time and sharing his valuable insights about the impact of mass migration as an emergency manager and also as emerging management's next metacrisis it's truly honor to have you on the show and to hear about your experiences and to our listeners thank you for tuning in if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes please don't hesitate to reach out to me on our website or via social media i'm generally on linkedin all the time and if you like the topics and the discussion please share and leave a review on your favorite podcast player until next time stay safe and thanks Jorge for joining us today it was really nice having
0: you let to be here. thank you